The Road Taken with CT and Bayo is presented by State Farm. State Farm agents know that in life, anything can happen. You might buy your dream car on impulse. Or come home to a broken-in apartment. Maybe say yes to a proposal from your significant other and start a family. Or find yourself in a fender bender when you least expect it. Whatever happens, when it comes to home and auto insurance, State Farm agents are there to help. And with over 19,000 agents in neighborhoods across the U.S., there could be one just around the corner. So, contact an agent today. Because no matter what neighborhood you're from or whatever stage of life you're in, check out statefarm.com today to find an agent in your neighborhood. State Farm. Talk to an agent today. Today's show is also brought to you by the Google Assistant. The Google Assistant is ready to help you get more done with just your voice in the car, at home, and everywhere you take your phone. The Assistant is really helpful when we're on the road. Let's say we're in some city I don't know very well and I've just spilled coffee on my favorite shirt. Bayo can just say, hey Google, where's the nearest dry cleaner? A little help hands-free. Just say, hey Google, to get started. Hello, friends. Welcome to the sixth episode of The Road Taken with CT and Bayo, part of the Ringer Podcast Network. I'm Bayo. And I'm CT. CT, where are we today? We are back at the mothership at CNC Music Factory. Yes, our home studio in Eagle Rock. At the last episode, I asked you to define meaningful time at home. Do you remember that? Vaguely. Well, I thought you did a beautiful job. So we've been, we're home, obviously. We're not on tour. But we've been home now. The answer you gave when I asked you what meaningful time home is, you said five consecutive weeknights at home. That was pretty good off the top of my head. I I mean, yeah, because I I I have no recollection of this conversation. I I re-listened to that episode uh, to get prepared for today. And coming up with that definition on the spot was actually pretty stunning. Now, we've had, I counted it up, we've had eight weeknights at home since we recorded the last one. Do you feel refreshed? Do you feel like you've had meaningful time at home? Do you feel like you've taken care of all you needed to take care of? Uh, you know what? I do. And actually, I was thinking just this morning, so we're leaving for tour again tomorrow night. Yeah. So uh, I should say we're recording this on uh, November 4th, a Monday. We're flying to Europe tomorrow. Tomorrow night. And um, being that close to, to leaving again, I started thinking about packing and that kind of kicks in 36 hours before I leave. Is like, oh, what do I have to do? What do I have to be sure to finish? And I found myself torn between, I've had such a good time at home with my wife and mm-hmm. not one, but count them, two Halloween parties, at both of which I was Al Borland, sexy Al oh, Borland. Oh, yeah, yeah, you are great. How many people actually, well, because we hung out on Halloween night and I had to witness multiple people tell you you were Tim the Toolman Taylor. How, how did that feel when people said that to you? It was never in a, a negative spirit, negative yeah. intent. I think that their mindset, home improvement, uh, Tim the Toolman Taylor. Yeah, yeah. It wasn't a, you know, a slight on, on Richard Karn or anything like that. Do you like feel that. like Al Borland on the show was resentful of Tim the Toolman Taylor? Because I feel like now that you lived as Al Borland for two Al's nights, life. you have a nice window into that. Well, when I went back and watched some clips of the show, I forgot how mean-spirited Tim the Toolman yeah, Taylor is. Yeah, not a nice man on the show. And I thought Al is, is, is a sweetheart. Absolutely. I think is a hard worker is I would say the heart and soul of tool time. Yeah, definitely. Um, and so, but you know, I, I think most people, they, they, it wasn't an insult. They, they were yeah. just sort of were trying to be in the spirit and say the first thing that came to mind. A number of people got Al Borland. So, you know, okay. I think it was probably evenly split. Because it killed me when, when my <laughs> wife 
<laughs> and then other people too. Before my eyes asked if you were Tim. Well, a couple Tim were, were British, and yeah, yeah. I don't think it necessarily that showed in travel as well. Of course, but regardless, uh, I found myself this morning being torn between enjoying the time home, but also not ready to go per se, but excited mm-hmm. to leave again, and and thinking about this next tour, which would be our first club headlining shows uh, in Europe in six years. Yeah, thinking about you know playing the UK, playing a few shows on the continent and stuff. I, I, we did some festivals this summer, but I think this will be the the real, you know, the full presentation of what of what a Vampire Weekend show can be right now. So I think it, it was equally like, ah, I've had a good time at home, but I am excited to go play these shows. So I was, I was torn, to be honest. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's a great answer, and I kind of feel the same way. I mean, I'm really looking forward to all these places we're going to. We fly to Edinburgh tomorrow night. Uh, you know what, I'm actually, I've been thinking about this, what I'm really excited about doing. Going to Nando's? No, I mean, I don't know if I will. We'll see. But uh, I'm going to buy a new peat coat. Oh, uh, I don't have real <laughs> use for it here in sunny Los Angeles, California. But my last peat coat I bought maybe five years ago. And we had moths at our last place we lived at in London. So it's mm. completely moth-ridden and disgusting. So I think I'm going to buy a fresh peat coat in Edinburgh. And that's something that I've been thinking about and looking forward to. Well, stay tuned to The Road Taken for peat coat updates, which I'm I'm sure will furnish you for next week's episode. I, I should also say, um, we're going to be on tour now for the rest of the season. So this is the last time you'll hear an intro where we're not on tour. We're going to take the whole thing on the road from here on out. Intros and outros. Um, give it that real on-tour energy. None of this bullshit, oh, we're at home talking to each other which I'm pretty psyched about. Um, Oh, one thing I wanted to say is if you like The Road Taken, I think it would be great if you reviewed it on the iTunes store. Um, Oh, yeah, we sort of forgot to say that the last few times. Yeah, we haven't been saying it, so I wanted to put it in the intro. But, you know, this first season is 10 episodes. This is the sixth one. There's four after. But I know CT... I would love to keep doing this. Would you love to keep doing this? Certainly. Yeah, so, I mean, reviewing this show helps us immensely. So... If you could do that, we would really appreciate it. Like and subscribe and all that stuff. Five stars. And I, and we still have the email. What's the email again? It's uh, theroadtakenattheringer.com. That's for more personal feedback. Um, but the public feedback helps spread it and, and gets other people who are interested in life on the road and, and how to deal with tour. Actually, I had someone stop me at the gym the other day whose wife was on tour for the first time as part of like a Broadway style show. Oh, whoa. And he said he was listening to The Road Taken. He sent it to her and, and they've been talking about it. So that made me feel Did great. you know this person? I did not. I No. Holy shit. That's pretty cool. At the gym. At the gym. That's enough to like do a couple extra reps. I would have been so psyched. Well, we, we, we were talking about it after the class that so we had gotten oh, our reps shit. in. But you know, in you the afterglow. In and the afterglow, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, get a few more in. <laughs> um, who are we talking to today, CT? Uh, very excited that we are talking to the... I don't think this is a stretch. I can say iconic oh, yeah. Michelle Branch. Yeah, and um, maybe you listened to the first episode of The Road Taken with C.T. and Bayo where we interviewed Patrick Carney of the Black Keys. But believe it or not, we did this interview with Michelle about an hour and a half before that interview. This is our first and only two a day. And so just, you know, if you think about what happened in the Carney interview the young cats who were interviewing Michelle Branch had no idea that, that was going to happen. That was an hour and a half in their future. But I think we we grew a lot over this hour. This is an hour incredible. 14, let's say, yeah, is yeah. what it is right now. And I think it was interesting because I had, before this evening, I had a longer personal history with Patrick. So I, I had talked to him about some of this stuff before. But Michelle, who I'd hung out with a few times, um, I guess it should be mentioned that Patrick and Michelle are now married. Mm-hmm. And we're still in the... 
think I'd been married for a month or two when we visited them in Newly Nashville. Newlyweds. And so I had hung out with Michelle, but had never really talked shop, if you will, or, or talked about her history of touring and, and her experience, which as someone who, you know, was alive and had ears and a heart, I was very aware of Michelle Branch from, you know, when she exploded with her first album, The Spirit Room, and the song Everywhere in particular. And then obviously the legendary song with Santana, uh, a lot of stuff that we get into. But th- this is very cool as someone talking to as, whatever, 15, 16 years later, more, as as kind of a peer mm-hmm. uh, with very different experiences. And hers, I was excited to learn from her. And, and I think she was very open, and, and I think I did. I would go so far as to call this a great conversation. <laughs> did you love this one? I really did. I love this conversation. <laughs> but also... Um, Live music and performing and touring really features heavily in Michelle's career in a way that surprised me. I won't reveal too much more. Yeah, I don't know. I think we should just get into it. Let's play this shit. And uh, it starts with her complimenting us, our sartorial choice for this particular evening, which is a great way to start. Oh, yeah. Here it is, our conversation with Michelle Branch. You guys both have very good socks. Oh, thank you. Sock, oh, my sock God. game is strong. <laughs> well, you know, when we packed for tour, we made sure to... I Yeah, I actually bought a bunch of new socks because I've been on, like, deep in tours and my socks do not smell. I thought about packing socks nice. for this tour, actually. You didn't go to Target and get the pack of, like, the all-black? I used to get the pack of black crew That's socks, That's what yeah. I do. But, I mean, this makes laundry so much easier. True, because, yeah, you can you can tell them <laughs> apart and everything. So, as you were saying, Tommy Lee came to uh, some <laughs> yeah, of your earlier shows. Yeah, we're going to start right there. <laughs> uh, okay. So, yes, I was playing a showcase at the Roxy, his old stomping ground. And uh, <laughs> I had someone come up to me like, hey, you know who asked for tickets tonight? And I was like, no, who? They're like, Tommy Lee. It's like, why? I was like <laughs> 17 or 18 at the time. And I guess he was a big fan. I'm nice. just gonna leave it at that. <laughs> had your had your first record come out at that point? No, it was a it was before, like, so he was early. Yeah, I mean, he'd heard the single. Okay, hell yeah! yeah. So you're to the ground. CT, who are go. we with? We are with the delightful Michelle Branch. Hi. Who we are very grateful to sit down and spend some time with us. So thank you very much. You're very welcome, you guys. And as you mentioned, I think probably the place where we're interested in starting is you had so much success early on, but I think before that, what would you consider? as your first ever gigs, your first ever musical performances? Mm, Gosh. Um, Let's see. I grew up in a really small town in Arizona, and I was always singing, but everything kind of changed for me when I got a guitar for my 14th birthday. My parents didn't buy it. They weren't sure that I was committed enough for them to spend money on an (laughs) instrument. So they asked my uncle if I could borrow his guitar for my birthday. <laughs> and like, if like I was serious, a, a they might 20, buy me one. A tight 24 hours? Or they give you like a week No, they or gave two. me like a, a while. And I borrowed an acoustic guitar and he gave me like a Mel Bay guitar chord book and a Neil Young cheat sheet, cheat mm-hmm. book, fake book, and a Cat Stevens book. And I was off to the races. Like a few weeks later, I came out in the living room and asked my mom and dad if I could play them a song and I played them a song and they were like, oh, that, that was good. What's that song? And I was like, oh, I, I made it up. And they were like, wait, what? You made it up? And kind of from then on, I was writing and kind of obsessively playing songs. And my first gigs were not glamorous. They were 
state fairs and PTA luncheons and like, stuff and in you, Sedona, Arizona. Like you and an acoustic guitar. Me and an acoustic guitar. Were you doing originals from the start? Yeah. And I would I would do covers. I would do weird covers. I would play like my first song I learned on guitar was Love is a Rose from Neil Young. Oh wow. Um, so I would play Love is a Rose and then play my songs. But my mom was a manager of a Mexican restaurant. And so I would play in the bar at her Mexican <laughs> restaurant. And I actually wasn't even like old enough to be in there. But I would play over the games and stuff, like be the girl playing guitar in the corner. And yeah. um, I would make bank and tips because I think they just thought it was cute or whatever. And yeah, and yeah, that's what I did for a while. Was your first good show one where you got just a shitload of tips, essentially? <laughs> yeah. It was a night that I broke $200 in tips. And I was like, yes, I can quit my babysitting gig. And basically, I just bought records with whatever money I made. Could you read the room at that point where you, you could tell? Oh, yeah. I mean, they were there to drink margaritas and watch the game. And <laughs> yeah. they liked it when I played covers and not my originals. I, I was very aware of that I was kind of just cute background noise. <laughs> so how many years between that and playing the Super Bowl pregame show? It wasn't with, long, yeah. actually. It's very strange how quickly things happen in in my world. So, you know, get a guitar on 14th birthday. By my 15th birthday, I had made an indie record, made a solo record that my dad paid for. <laughs> <laughs> and someone came through Sedona on a timeshare resort and a woman that my parents knew worked at the timeshare resort. And she's like, Hey, you know, where are you from? How much do you make annually? What do you do for a living? Blah, blah, blah. And he's like, Oh, I'm from LA. I'm in the music business. And she was like, I have to call Michelle. So basically this poor man goes out on this timeshare tour <laughs> in Sedona and he gets back and she has called me in the meantime. And I was standing there with a demo tape. And when I say demo tape, it was like handwritten track listing, a cutout photo of me from a family photo <laughs> of, you know, I literally took scissors and cut myself out of a family photo. That and afternoon stuffed or, it you, or you in had the cassette. The... Oh, when she called, I okay. was like, let me get a, Assemble I don't this. have a promo shot. Yeah. I need to have a picture of myself. And my parents weren't home at the time. And Sedona, Arizona, where we lived is a big golf kind of retirement community. And so I stole my neighbor's golf cart and I drove it to the timeshare and I waited for him and I gave him my demo tape. And he was dating a woman who worked for Mercury Records at the time. Mercury was still around and they got in a massive fight driving back to LA and stopped talking and put my tape in the car. And he was like, holy shit. I need to call this girl. So literally when he got back to LA, he called the house and my parents answered and he's like, Hey, your daughter gave me a tape. <laughs> and he was my manager for a very long time, like up until a few years ago. Wow. Yeah. That story's fucking crazy. What would you said was like your best show or most, most like memorable show leading up to that? Like just margaritas or like what it seems or so the state fair, as you mentioned, anything like that. I don't know if there was a memorable show, yeah. to be completely honest. Um, I mean, it was me playing acoustic. There wasn't any kind of like aha moment where it felt. Would you be nervous before shows like that? or? No, I wasn't nervous at all. I feel 
weirdly more comfortable on stage with the guitar sometimes than I do outside of those situations. And it was strange because unlike a band, if I had been a band at the time and we'd been going out playing tons of shows and kind of, I feel like a band really finds themselves in that situation. But when you're by yourself, it's a little different because I feel like you find yourself more in your room or in places outside of being on stage. But very quickly, I met I met this man, his name's Jeff Rabhan, and he approached me about being my manager. And I had already made this kind of like demo tape slash record. And so he listened to it. We added a couple songs to it. And he was like, I want to pitch this around. I want to send this around to some people in LA. And he sent it to a guy named Danny Strick, who had just started working at Maverick Records. And he basically sent it to Danny saying, hey, do you like this? What should I do? But instead, Danny heard it and was like, wait a minute, I want to sign it. And Danny had left the publishing world and it was his first kind of job as an A&R guy. And he's now like, he's back at Sony and in publishing. But I was his first signing and I got signed to Maverick. How old are you at this point? I was, I had just turned 16. So two years with a guitar. Yeah. <laughs> and nice. I mean, I knew, I knew C, G, and F and <laughs> A minor and E minor, D. That was like the extent of my. From that Mel Bay yeah, guitar chord book. exactly. How many songs had you written at this point? Um, I had written probably, I'd, I'd recorded probably 20 songs and I had written, I'd written probably 50 maybe. I don't know. Um, my old manager, Jeff, also had kind of discovered the band Hanson. And so- He was on quite a heater. Yeah, he, he was really finding young talent at the time. So he sent my demo to Danny, who was at Maverick and was interested in signing me. And he also sent it to Hanson's manager and Hanson kind of like getting their feedback. And they were like, hey, does she want to open a couple shows for us? And they took me out on a little run. They took me out to open the Wiltern show and a Phoenix, Arizona show and a San Antonio show I was supposed to play. And I guess were those your first like traditional gigs? Then, those ever? were my first. Well, no, I take it back because I opened up for Sedona is a really touristy town. And we yeah. had. Uh, did you see Book Club Unrelated from last year? <laughs> I did see it. Yeah, that was there was some really good Sedona stuff. Yeah. Andy Garcia's characters exactly. from Sedona. Yeah, I, yeah. I loved I really appreciated that. I love that actually. movie. Yeah. yeah. Um, but Jackson Brown, he had a son who went to a boarding school in Sedona and they did a benefit show for the school every year. So I actually, so now I can answer the question. You asked what was my best show before getting signed or whatever. Jackson Brown heard a demo tape of mine and asked me to open the festival. So I was playing with like Jimmy Dale Gilmore and Sean Colvin and Crosby, Stills and Nash wow. and um, Patty Griffin, like a bunch of badass people were on the bill. And I was 15 when I, Oh play that goodness. show That's, so it would be hard to imagine playing that show like now kind of or like with yeah <laughs> with that sort of pedigree yeah. and that history there maybe there is to some degree maybe there's like the the inexperience of youth leads to not oh, even not sure. even sort of oh yeah cool yeah yeah i'll like i'll go play uh, and 100%. not think about yeah 
I feel like you're so much more capable of achieving things at a certain age when you don't have fear or you don't have, you're not second guessing anything. You're just kind of like ready to go at any moment. I think you're, there's like kind of a magical thing about being that age and having a chance to chase after shit. Did you crush at that show? Did what? Did you crush? Oh, I thought you... <laughs> Sorry, what do you think I asked? <laughs> I thought you said, like, did I cry? And I was like, no, I don't think I cried. No, no. Yeah. I, I did. But I think, again, so there's this age thing. I think people, my age, if you imagine like a 14 or 15-year-old girl going out with a guitar and like Jackson Brown announced me on stage and yeah. said how like he had invited, heard my demo and announced and had asked me to be on the show. Like, there's kind of like a, oh, look, at that point. Mm-hmm. So, I don't know. Well, yeah. <laughs> right. Speaking um, of a magical point in time, yeah. opening for Hanson. Yeah. In, so, what are we talking, 99, 2000? It was in their heyday. So, so post Mbop. Post Mbop. It was maybe on their second record. Okay. My first show with them was at the Wiltern and in Los Angeles. In Los Angeles. And Danny Strick, who had heard my tape, he was there from Maverick and. I opened for Hanson, solo acoustic, could barely hear me over screaming teenage girls. Were they screaming at you in I think delight, they hated in encouragement, me. or just like, I think they were finish, like, who's finish, this, finish. who's this bitch who's on tour with Hanson? <laughs> like, who's but this girl? She gets to, she gets to hang out with them yes. or whatever. Um, but I came off stage and Danny was there and he was like, I want to sign you. Where's your mom and dad? <laughs> Basically. So my story were is very, yeah, they were there. Okay. My story isn't normal at all. It's wild. It's it's very strange. And I feel like as a teenager, that wouldn't happen now, especially with the internet and the way music is discovered. And I don't know. It was just, it was a very kind of stars aligning. Timing was right. Series of events. It happened really quick. We're talking getting a guitar for my 14th birthday and having a record deal by 16. And by 19, I think, I had a platinum record. So it was crazy. Was there a difference in mentality or, or is this sort of, was it all such a blur at that point that doing like a Hanson show, say, did that feel similar to you in some ways to the Margarita happy hour soundtrack? Um, it did. I mean, the audience was very different. <laughs> they weren't drunk middle-aged men, but there are probably still a few. There, that would have been real. Yeah, yeah. some chaperones, some dads, some chaperones. chaperones, drunk chaperones. No, it it wasn't very it wasn't very different. I mean, I feel like the energy of playing for a, a packed Wiltern of screaming teenage girls was definitely something I hadn't experienced yet. Um, nor have I ever experienced since. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I feel like when I was when I was looking at when watching old stuff. I mean. Oh was, no, you're watching on We stuff. do research for our podcast. I mean, I'm I, so I, sorry, I, you guys. I mean, no, you, no. Were, you remain so, but you were very charming. There, there was some, there's one in particular was like a Kentucky fair where it seemed like you'd had a rough travel day. Oh, was it in Paducah? Yes. Yes, it was. Paducah was my first like radio promo show. Oh, really? Yeah. And it was like, I literally went on after a lawnmower race. <laughs> Right, so, and then just for, for I remember it vividly for our listeners who maybe don't know the the differences in the world of live music. You play your own shows, but then also there's a radio promo show. Yeah, which you're typically not being paid for. Oh no, you're doing it in exchange for goodwill Someone with a radio my station. Album, yeah, yeah, modern day payola. So you're doing modern day payola in Paducah, and yeah, you were very charming. 
Thanks. And the you could tell you could tell there was like some some problem with flights as as you you mentioned in the video. Yeah, I don't but, remember the details, but but I think you when you you got what details do you remember, CT? From from watching it today. Show, yeah. uh, was when? Oh my god, I'm horrified. That's when you online. got to <laughs> when you got to everywhere, you you kind of said, "All right, well, I'll just play the song you guys know now." <laughs> And well, then, and guess uh, what? Yes, Nothing yeah. much has changed. <laughs> kind of every one of my shows is like, okay, fine, I'll play that song. <laughs> it's, it's the one you guys know. No, so my album came out in August of 2001, and I was very, very much a radio artist and a an MTV TRL artist. And these were the days as, when... As consumers of, of both of those things <laughs> oh, at that yeah. time, we yeah. can... Yes. So those were the days when, I mean, radio was what my world revolved around. And I think it's really interesting to see now how it's changed so much because we would plan a whole album cycle kind of around my radio promo. And I would play every holiday show for every radio station, you know, every Jingle Ball, every whatever, Z100 this. We would just travel around and play these shows full band, you know, making no money and just play these shows for radio stations. I remember there were like a few heated moments where we couldn't physically get to a show and they were like, we're, we're pulling her record and that kind of stuff would happen. And that from the station. Yeah. End. Yeah. And it's interesting because now jumping forward, I released an album two years ago and I'm like, cool. So happy that all those years of radio <laughs> helped me because it, it helped in the moment, but it's funny to be a radio artist, to have radio success, but not necessarily like touring success. Or yeah, it's like live by the sword. Yeah, it's, it's, by the sword I've, I've learned a lot by kind of trial by fire, I guess. What was the shortest set you ever played at a radio show? Three songs. Yeah, Eight minutes? Nine yeah. minutes? Well, actually, it was worse in the UK doing promo because you... They didn't want anyone to play live. They would only give a few slots to live bands. And I didn't know that. And the label flew my whole band out to basically lip sync. <laughs> and I was like, you know how expensive these flights were? And you're just playing the record and we're just going to stand up there. But we played like Party in the Park or something. And we played three songs. And I think I did live vocal to track, but I, I didn't know till I was there. I was so pissed. <laughs> I was so mad. So I guess and you went from writing your own songs, having a demo to, and you looted having a whole band and stuff like that. But what was that process becoming sort of like a boss at the age of 16, 17, 18, and having all these musicians that work for you? Um, it was definitely, everything went, I can't reiterate this enough. Everything happened so fast. It was like in a movie when you see a band form and they write a song and they go in the studio and they leave the studio and it's playing on the radio. And the next thing you know, they're on tour. That's how it felt for me. Um, Had you seen that thing you do before? That's that <laughs> okay. thing you do. That's yeah. what I was referencing. Exactly. It was like, and then I was on the radio one minute. I was in the studio. The next I was on MTV. It was very strange. Um, the hardest thing looking back is I never kind of was able to live in the moment because it went so fast and it just, I never really had time to step back and process what was happening um, until I was much older. And I was like, God, I've really <laughs> been through a lot. I didn't realize. But um, I moved to LA on my own, which is crazy as a mother of a 13-year-old daughter now to know that my parents let me move to LA on my own when I was, when I was 16 is insane. <laughs> and there was a guy in LA, I don't remember his name, but he would put together bands 
for people. God, I wish I could remember Fun. his name. Yeah. If you knew it, I I would totally recognize it. But we had like auditions for a band and I remember the label wanted them to be like young and cute, but none of the young guys could really play the stuff that was on the record as good. So they weren't, we had a young, cute band, but they weren't probably as young and cute as the label wanted. Um, Who had the, was there a division of final say? Was it yours? We narrowed it down. I mean, I felt like a lot of the decisions really were headed by me, but some of the decisions like strange decisions, like you guys both see me right now. I'm sitting here, no makeup. I have a birthmark. And a lot of people don't realize I have a birthmark because there was a full on meeting when I first started, when we were filming my first music video about whether or not to cover my birthmark or not. Um, That's really creepy. <laughs> it's really, a bunch of grown men. Yeah. This yeah. is stuff that you guys don't ever have to no, deal with. Yeah. That's creepy. Um, so they were like, do we cover her birthmark or do we not? And I and remember my- this meeting. No, I wasn't. I was just told like, okay, we've decided we're going to cover your birthmark. Are you cool with that? And I was like, yeah, cool. I just want to be on MTV. That's fine. <laughs> Whatever. So yeah, we ended up covering my birthmark. And to this day, like I'll pay for something with a credit card and someone will look at my card and be like, wait, Michelle Branch, like the singer. But if I have my birthmark covered, if I play a show, like I tend to still now like cover it when I play shows, people will recognize me. It's very strange. And there were meetings about like, should she play guitar on stage or should she, should we hire a choreographer and have her dance? And I was like, fuck that. I'm not doing that. So there were a lot of things I did kind of stick to my guns about. When you were choosing your, your band mates, the people that you were going to play with, was it really their playing that you were looking for? Had you, previous to these auditions, had you played with a band or had it? No. no. <laughs> No, I, I had I had a few friends who were in a band who my manager also represented who I did some demos with. And then John Shanks, who produced my first record, who's still like one of my closest friends to this day. He was down at the rehearsals and he's like a monster guitar player. So he was there like making sure people had chops. We ended up picking guys who had a band on the side together. So they kind of came into audition as a unit and they obviously like felt like a band and they, they were my band for a good chunk of time. How did you feel as, and this is kind of what, what Chris was asking earlier, but as you know, the, the boss, if you will, even if it doesn't feel like that, that's still sort of, you know, I'm sure it was how it functioned and being in charge of it, being upfront of these, these guys who had, it's interesting if they came in as a unit, then they had an identity maybe yeah. and, and their own sort of onstage they, stuff. They were really respectful. I never felt like when we were, running down songs and making new arrangements for live shows or whatnot. They always listened. They were always wanting to help make things better or help kind of see my vision. The only time that it felt weird was when we were on tour and we would hit a city and everyone would scatter. And I was underage and female and like, cool guys, I'll, I'm just going to go back to the hotel. Cause they were, I was like their underage female boss on a bus with actually like 12 guys. And they were like, peace. Have a good night. See you tomorrow. And I was like, all right, I no guess to hang with? I'm going to go back to my room and write some songs. And so it was, it was very isolating in that respect. I feel like that would have been a role that would have been taken care of or something of if the, if the, like the my powers mind, that be my could, minder, my or not even, not, but not even that like <laughs> condescending, even just like if they're going to have a meeting about your birthmark, yeah. they could have a meeting about, she should probably have someone to hang out with. Oh, we didn't have a room on the on the one bus I could afford, you know? Like, the bus was maxed out. I mean, I had, like, a... My tour manager also did front of house, 
And he was kind of like my buddy, mm. but that was it. Yeah. <laughs> How much time elapsed between your record coming out and doing a first full show with the band? And We were playing shows well before the album was out. I remember we, we opened up for, we played the El Rey. One of our big first shows was playing the El Rey and Maroon 5, but they weren't Maroon 5 yet. They were a band called Kara's Flowers. It was Kara's Flowers first, me, and then this brother duo called Evan and Jaren. They were acidic twins, (laughs) pop duo. Um, And that was like our big first show. And then I got offered a tour opening up for a band called Lifehouse, who had the huge song of Hanging by a Moment. Yeah, of course. I remember that. Um, And we flew out to start the tour on September 9th of 2001. Played the show September 10th in Milwaukee. Flew to Chicago and woke up on Mm -hmm. September 11th. And it kind of just shut down the whole tour because... That I thought was, the tour didn't continue. That was, yeah. No, we took like two weeks off, but it just, it just changed everything about the release. But we did play Your some record shows. Had come out at that point. My record came out August fourteenth. Okay, so it was out. It, but, it had yeah. been out, but that was my first big tour. So your first just tour started. was three shows, and then nine eleven happened. Show. One, One show, show, and then nine eleven happened. Yeah. Yeah. Do, what are what are some of the memorable, memorable shows for you, either opening or headlining, sort of in that first so, rush? Historically, I I was always an opener. I very rarely played headline shows in those days, and I did some really amazing tours. I went on tour Cheryl Crow. I went on tour the Dixie Chicks right after their comment about President Bush, which was really fun. Um, <laughs> Okay, what was that tour like? That tour was phenomenal. Yeah. Um, they specifically wanted to take out someone who wasn't country. And they were indoor shows in the round, which was really fun. Like, um, like arenas? Yeah. And it was the first tour I'd been on where there was like phenomenal catering. And we weren't just getting like <laughs> 20 bucks every day for pizza. And to be on tour with women who were moms was really cool to see because they all had kids and... I saw that they could make it work and have children in tour. Um, But probably to this day, kind of the most amazing show I've ever played and still kind of just can't believe it happened was I opened up for Neil Young in Hong Kong outside on the harbor. What year? Um, This was 2002, I think. Mm -hmm. Um, And I just sat side stage and just sobbed like the whole time. I mean, if you can remember... First song I learned is Love is a Rose right, yeah, from Neil Young. Yeah. I mean, he's my hero for guitar playing. And um, so that was to this day, like the best show That's I've ever been unreal. able to play. <laughs> I'm curious if you had any sort of misgivings or if you're questioning the way you were being positioned in a sort of like a pop radio artist, it, especially given that Neil Young is my hero. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like, and what that feels like when you're 18, 19, 20, if you had those misgivings or if it, you kind of weren't thinking about it because everything was so crazy. No, it's really interesting. So my first album, I remember vividly, we didn't play the album for anybody until it was mixed and mastered. And we invited everyone down from the label to hear it when we were mixing it. And the second record, because there was so much success from the first 
everyone wanted to be involved from the get-go and wanted to hear stuff as we were working. And we tried to keep people out. But um, I remember when we were making a video for a song called Breathe that was a single on my second record, they wanted me not to play guitar. They brought in a stylist and they wanted me to like wear this little like leather skirt with a bustier thing. And I remember I like lost it. I left the set and I was like, fuck you guys. <laughs> I'm wearing my jeans and t-shirt. Like I'm playing my guitar. I mean, there, there were definitely like moments like that. Um, I mean, you have to remember right when I hit like Britney Spears and Christina Aguilera were still very, very huge. And uh, so as I got more successful, I think definitely music business, the folks that were at Maverick wanted to kind of well, capitalize an interesting on way, that. And maybe the opposite of what people would assume going into something like this is that the more successful you got, maybe the less freedom. Correct. Is that yeah. kind of how it worked? Yeah, I feel that way for sure. And I also feel like it was also my like angsty teen years at the of same course, time. Yeah. yeah, I can only imagine. And, like, That's me, something that, yeah, we've been, I was thinking about that getting ready for today. We were lucky in the sense that you have each we were, other. Well, and we were 23 and 24 when our first record came out. And you know, there's, still, there's still, still some can, angst there. You're still oh, yeah. a young but idiot, not, but like yeah. being 18, I can only imagine. But you guys had each other to like bounce stuff off of. Like I had grown men surrounding me. Crazy. In every direction I looked. Um, and I also, thank God, my dad and I have a great relationship right now, but my dad was a plumbing contractor and decided that he wanted to manage me for a minute with my manager. Mm. And we had a very tumultuous moment where I had to tell my dad, dad, I, I really need you to be my dad and I don't you want you to, to work with me. And I had to fire my dad. Yeah. We thankfully can laugh about it now, but I swear one day I want to like make a coffee table book of artists who had parents as their managers, managers and like tell the story because it's so gnarly. Um, How long did he do that for? He didn't make it past the first album because I I remember he he had this thought that everything could be written off. <laughs> <laughs> like early on and he was like my he's so sweet because he was like business is business I run a plumbing company like okay business is business me and your mom and your sister are going to come to LA for the weekend and visit and like we'll just write off the flights right and my business manager was like hey Michelle so your dad's trying to write off all these flights so I'm like, okay dad you're not managing me or like my dad was like why do you have to pay so much money for your music video because back then so much money was dumped into music videos. And I remember the video for everywhere was like $350,000. And my dad was like, wait a minute, you have to pay for half of this. And like, why does it have to be this big? And he, but he fought, he was like, no, we're not making this music video. We're not spending this much money. Thank God we did. Cause (laughs) that's what broke my record. Um, so yeah, my dad was lovingly, lovingly fired and it was really awkward did did he have any opinions <laughs> like shit where do we go from no, there no, I, well, I, <laughs> I have a million questions about that but i don't know how, <laughs> i mean did, did your dad have a say did he have opinions on the band he did but i mean he's not a musician like i don't mean that as a condescending comment to my father but he's not a musician and he's i can see now as a parent especially he was he just wanted to watch over me and wanted to make sure 
everything was kosher. But at the time, you know, my manager seemed like a grown up. And looking back, my manager was 27 years old. <laughs> and so I'm sure my dad was like, what the fuck is happening? I mean, that, that happened to us where, mainly speaking for myself, I just assumed that everyone we worked with was older than us and like knew more than me. Yeah. And that like with the first tour manager we had in, in Europe, you know, it was like one time we were like had to do a passport thing. And then it turned out, it's like, oh, he's like two years younger than us. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he's, you know, he still had sort of been around the block maybe a few more times, but there, that was sort of an interesting moment too, yeah. realizing that, and maybe that lesson didn't never really sunk in with me, but that even- Take it, it till you make it. Or, or even, even just like, you can trust yourself as much as you can trust yeah. people that are in front of you just because they happen to- to be 100%. in certain positions. Yeah. yeah. In that first period where the first record comes out and you're doing an insane amount of promo and you're being put in a position where you have to fire your father, mm-hmm. how much like real shows that were your own did you do? I did. I feel like I might have done one small run of solo shows and it was club shows. And this is when... The record's kind of everywhere and like, no uh, you're on, I know I didn't, I, I realized it right after it came out of my mouth, but, uh, and then you're on TV all the time and it was kind of a, yeah. Yeah. I was, I was playing a lot of opening up for people and doing a lot of radio shows and I had, I think I had a couple, you know, I remember now, sorry, this is like, no, I haven't no. really thought about of this, course, in, but that's so, why this in depth is fun. for so long. I did a couple like college tours. I remember I did a big 10 tour and I feel like I did a tour for Virgin Virgin Mega Stores or something mm-hmm. back then. Rest in peace. Uh <laughs> yeah, I did a lot of like package tours and stuff, but I really feel like I wish I could go back. I mean, I'm sure I can go back because it's all recorded somewhere and find like how many days of a year I was actually home. I remember in 2001, right after 9-11, when security was so heightened at every airport, the month of December, I was on a plane 19 days of the month. So playing Christmas radio right. shows, bouncing back and forth, which was a nightmare because we had to be at the airport like three hours early yeah, for yeah. every flight. And we had and so much gear those, to check. And, those legendary three song sets. Uh, yeah, exactly. And we were just exhausted. But it was fun. I mean, thank God I was a baby. Yeah. <laughs> Energy yeah, yeah. to do it all. Before we go on, let's take a quick break to hear from our sponsor. Hey guys, CT here. And I'm really excited about this new music documentary podcast, Long May They Run. Created, directed, and produced by C13 Originals, the team that brought you gangster capitalism and root of evil, this is their new series, Long May They Run a groundbreaking new music documentary podcast exploring iconic touring bands who have had a lasting impact on music culture and beyond. Season one is one that's been very meaningful to me, and it's focusing on the band Fish, one of the most successful, impactful, and pioneering bands of all time, from touring to ticketing to streaming to festivals to fandom and more. I'm about halfway through. I'm a little bit behind, but I'm halfway through, and I've found so much fascinating stuff. I'm obviously, as I think I've talked about here on The Road Taken and otherwise, a huge fan of Fish. But what I didn't realize is how innovative they were in a lot of behind-the-scenes ways. They almost were the first to do a band on a ship, a jam cruise, if you will. Uh, There's lots of fascinating stuff about Big Cypress, their Millennium Concert, and more. Um, The series features new interviews with all four band members, the music of Fish, and over 80 interviews with people in and connected with the band. You can find Long May They Run now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, 
radio.com and anywhere you listen to your podcasts. It's worth your time. Do you have a memory of a single worst radio show from that period? Oh, gosh. I mean, the Paducah, Kentucky show. No. <laughs> oh, okay, we already got there. <laughs> no, yeah. no I, I don't know. I'm sure there was one. Was there any fun backstage stuff at those things? Because the ones we've had, they're particularly, I think, when we're younger and before you like really meet people. And when, that's this when is, you, that's see when you other sort bands. of realize, oh, there's not a community that's like, die, you know, die hard for each other, yeah. but you sort of, it's sort of a little bit like high school yeah, totally. you know, where there's like, oh, they're over there. And like, are we going to talk to them? Yeah. Like we sort of, we sort of know them sort of like them, but like, you know, have we met? Yeah. Was it, was there anything like that, that, that you remember of? Like- yeah, there were definitely the same kind of groups doing the circuit of the radio shows. And it was always exciting to me if there were bands who were kind of the same age, but there were rarely, um, I remember like Vanessa Carlton came up around the same time and that would be a, a big, a big deal if she was playing know, the yeah. same bill as me. Cause it was like, do we like each other? Do we not like each other? Everyone keeps what is your relationship? What is, what is your relationship? We're fine. <laughs> we're totally fine now. But at the time, I think we were like, Somewhat I don't wary. know, this is really yeah. strange because everyone keeps getting us confused. Um, but no, there was, you would start to like run into each other and be like, oh, hey, like saw you guys in Seattle. Like what you guys been up to? But I was kind of teenage, single, hormonal girl. And I was always like, okay, who are the bands on this bill? Are there any like single guys on the bill? And there were a couple like guitar techs in bands that I was always very excited when we would cross paths. Oh, guitar, guitar techs? techs? Yeah. I love that. That's you not know? where I expected the, the punchline to be. No, because they were more, there was a guitar tech for American Hi-Fi, who is my age. And I was always stoked when we crossed paths. Nothing bad. Just very PG stuff. Yeah, yeah. But, um, I feel like we played a lot of, a lot of radio shows with, it was like train. I'm trying to think these were like, it was Avril somewhere. Avril wasn't time? out yet. Oh, she wasn't out yet. She wasn't out until my second record. And actually that being said, I became really, really close friends with her band, but not her. <laughs> <laughs> okay. her. Her drummer, Matt was one of my really close friends for a long time. And we played a lot of shows together, but Avril and I never really. Mm-hmm. Got very close, but yeah. <laughs> That's so funny. Yeah, because I I feel like we were, we didn't know each other at that point, but I feel like we probably were consumers in the same way of like thinking about these bands, sort of imagining what, because I remember hearing, you know, the advertisements for Jingle Ball. Yeah. Or, yeah. you know, whatever my local one was and being like, so oh, what that seems year, so cool. <laughs> what year were you guys, was your first record again? 2008. So we're still, oh, yeah. we're, we're still in like, high school. Yeah. yeah. We're like high school. I was, yeah, high school junior at yeah. this point. But, um, I want to go back to guitar decks for one second. And also I will, I just want to say we, <laughs> oh, no, anything you want us to cut. That. No, it's fine. Anything you want us to cut. There's we're, nothing. We're There's, my life is an open book. But do you like guitar techs? Cause they like they're nurturing figures. Maybe when you're on stage, <laughs> I'm just trying to figure it, it out. I, I mean, I love my guitar tech, Ron. There's been a couple times where something's <laughs> wrong, wrong. And he's like been there for me and he's, the guy who's watching over me like a guardian angel. And I'm just kind of curious if maybe that's part of it. No, for you. I just, no offense, guys. I didn't trust band guys. Okay. <laughs> I was like, I see you guys and all You're the girls are here at the show. Savvy. And I think you guys are kind of pieces of shit. So <laughs> I like, I like, like the I like, I like the, the text. Okay. He's, he's so busy working. He can also help me if I, you know, need my guitar <laughs> set up and 
Yeah. He has his head down. He's focused. Okay. I don't know. I feel yeah. like you party with the band guys and you, you see the quiet tech who's been working their butt off all day. I don't know. That's great. That's beautiful. <laughs> Absolutely. The um, was there any any bands you ran into in a lot of these things that you you sort of didn't get along with? Um, no, I mean, jo- all joking aside, the Avril and Vanessa Carlton thing, we really were all pitted against each other at no, the time. Of course, and Avril too. I mean, because you played instruments and were not like explicitly dance. Pop yeah, stuff. I don't know why. Maybe it's a female thing. I don't know if it was the age or whatnot but there was a competition or felt competitive in mm-hmm. at the time we had the I same don't know. thing and i think that one that way now. but also i think she was very weirded out that i was avril was very weirded out that like they'd fly into la and her band would be like michelle what are you doing and we'd all go hang out and she wasn't invited ever <laughs> i don't know <laughs> it was very weird was that because she was underage at that point so maybe you- it was because she was underage so they, mm. and maybe the- but she's canadian so she was probably drinking like well before i was but maybe maybe it was a sort of the same thing like you were saying with your band of like if she was yeah. their underage boss she's oh yeah and no you, one, you know, there was- no one wants to hang out with their boss you know oh yeah no one wants to go have drinks with their boss and their day off in la yeah, no, of course. I relate to what you're saying because I remember when you when you make your record, you just think of it as its own thing. And then suddenly when it's out in the world, maybe there'll be like a lot of British press. I don't think they do it as much, but British music press would love like a band rivalry. So people would write about us and the band MGMT. Yeah, and then suddenly, and suddenly you feel it's it. like <laughs> man, people have written about them. you and these people you've never met. As this like kind of like competing forces and, and already that'll skew the and dynamic. You're like, Do I like you? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And and we're friends with everybody now, but I can only imagine those identical dynamics again when you're 18 instead of 23 or 24, just making and things also automatically the, weird. It must be set a significantly higher level of scrutiny and attention. Paid oh yeah, yeah, of course. <laughs> no, um, no. I I just I remember vividly. Guy Siri ran Maverick when I was there and. When Avril became really, really successful, I had my band that I spoke about earlier of like late 20s, early 30s guys who I thought were really cool. And when we were getting ready to release my second record and go on tour, Guy Osiri was like, I don't want anyone in your band under the age of 18 because he'd seen Avril's band was all really young and they were like jumping around stage and stuff. And I remember getting in a huge fight with Guy Osiri and I was like, if... If you find a 17-year-old guy who can play the guitar that's on this record, they can be in the band. But until then, this is my band and fuck you for mm. like for wanting them to look like kids and play a certain part. So that that was a huge fight, I remember vividly. That feels tough for you because it, Avril's whole thing was extremely different than yours. And yeah. I feel like having skate punk looking kids that are 17 is like was like a benefit for her that I maybe wonder, I, I don't even know how old she is i don't even know what our age difference yeah. is but we felt similar in age but i know i'm i'm older than her i'm 35 now so but yeah it was it was very strange to think that like people were making those decisions and actually having like phone calls about that like Crazy. i don't want anyone over the age of 21 and <laughs> michelle's it, it also seems like a bummer because it, it, these names that you mentioned if anything, could have been a source of like strength because you guys oh, yeah, were for sure. teenage women. Yeah. Going through I mean, these we same could, things. We should have like same... looking back, like we should have had our own co-headlining tour. Right. We could have right, had like yeah. our own thing, uh, you know. Was there any difference 
in touring your second record from your first or was it kind of just all one continuous blur of doing sort of the same things? There was a difference in that I felt like I stepped it up musically and production wise and stuff because the first for the first record, we were kind of like growing as we needed to and as we could afford to. And by the second album, I knew that I wanted a certain level of production because I'd now seen other people on tour and wanted like I remember going on my solo tour that for that album cycle and I knew I wanted video and I knew I wanted certain players and even like I wanted I wanted to rehearse more like it was all that kind of stuff so I felt as a music fan I felt a big need to step up the live show by the second record when was the game of love okay so the game of love happened so after your second in between, in between. Oh, my first and oh, second wow. album which felt like a whole album cycle in and of itself I mean, because there's any number, I, I sort of did want to ask some questions about this because yeah. it seems like for that song was such a huge song. Oh my God. Yeah. You, you were obviously very much a part of it, but it was sort of under Santana's yeah. guys, but it seemed like you did like an entire like worldwide promo tour. We did. Without doing <laughs> like shows. No, he would play shows and I would come out for one song. Oh. Yeah. Well, how was that experience for you? It was so crazy. Yeah, that's Actually, dynamic. that was fun. That was fun because I mean- he had such a fancy, cushy tour and he had, I mean, he was staying in these fancy hotels and staying in like the presidential suite of these old hotels and, you That's know, Vienna and this and money. Yeah. And I was just like, what? And I, they were like, do you want to bring a makeup artist and a stylist? I was like, sure. sure. <laughs> I, yeah, I do. So that was like one of the first tours that I had like friends out doing my makeup yeah. and bringing clothes. And I, I invited my sister out for that promo tour, my little sister. And we like went to Rome and we had days off when Santana didn't. And we were like taking pictures out front of the Coliseum. And it was amazing. Um, that song I actually, I auditioned for. So Greg Alexander, who was in the New Radicals, wrote that song. And Greg's touring band in the New Radicals was my band. Oh, um, Full circle. Oh, the band that you had been My band that I hired as my band. So he knew that we had started covering You Get What You Give at radio shows here and there. Like when we were running out of songs to play in our set list, like (laughs) we would sometimes break into that song. And Greg heard that we would play that song. So Greg wrote that song. And when they were trying to figure out singers, it was Macy Gray, Tina Turner, and... Greg threw my name in the mix and I heard it through my band first. And I was like, what? And they were like, yeah, Greg wants you to audition for this. And I was like, that's weird. And then I got the official call. Clive Davis called my manager and said they wanted me to sing it. And I drove out to Santa Monica to Rick Knoll's studio. The track was finished and I had never heard it before. And they kind of like let me hear it a few times. I listened to it. We went like verse by verse, kind of cut it basically. Like the in version a, you hear day? now. Yeah. The version you hear wow. now is like my audition tape. I never re-sang it, which I wish I could re-sing it. <laughs> um, but basically I sang it and I remember getting in my car and feeling like it was so uncomfortable. I felt so out of my element. Um, you mean as a studio setup? Yeah, I just, I, just walking in, yeah. walking in and not knowing Not even the, the melody? Song. You hadn't heard? No, no, no. And I, I thought I bombed it. And 
there's a version of Greg Alexander singing that was like the version we kept referencing in the studio. And I was like, okay, just trying to sing like Greg Alexander, basically. And I went on tour and was told I would hear if I got it. And I was like, there's no fucking way in hell I got it. And especially once I heard Tina Turner had sang it, I was like, yeah, that's not going to happen. Did you ever hear their versions or just that they had? Oh, their versions are out now. So if you go on YouTube and search, you can find their versions. Um, I think Tina Turner's version was released for like an anniversary edition. Mm. And I think Macy Gray's version is out there somewhere. And I definitely think Greg's Greg's is out. I mean, the beauty of YouTube. But um, I was on tour and we got a call basically just saying, Hey, what, what are you doing in third on Thursday? Cause you're going to be in Chicago. We're filming a video for the game of love. And I was like, what? So that's the first time I met Santana was they flew me to Chicago and we filmed the video and that was it. Um, but it was number one in like 27 yeah, countries or something. <laughs> it was insane. How were the performances for those? It was, it, they were great. It was hard because he has a very, very loud band. Huge <laughs> band. Like, he has a percussion section. Right, yeah. They are so loud. And so as a singer, it was really hard. Did you have in-ear monitors or any way to help you? Yeah, but I've always, I mean, to this day, I struggle with in-ears. Like, I'll always start a show with in-ears. And, like, by the end of the show, I have, like, at least one out. And... I'm a very quiet singer. So that it was. Oh, yeah. That's with a loud band. That's was very really challenging. It was really hard. But I mean, I don't. That was kind of the first taste of. I could kind of step out of my own way and like actually enjoy that promo tour was kind of magical. We went all over Europe and anything you wanted was there. And yeah. it was really cushy and was, uh, exciting. Was that choreographed the opening clap? Because I, I, when I watched a few, there was always. <laughs> An overhead clap to start the song. No. Or is that just naturally? Okay. <laughs> no, I would have never even <laughs> okay. noticed that. And what was cool was we filmed the video in Chicago and people in the neighborhood, it started to get out that Santana was filming a music video and people were Santana losing- Santana and Michelle Branch. Well, no, no, no. At that point it wasn't, they didn't know, but people were losing their minds and like coming out with like bathtub tequila they had made and like food <laughs> and people yeah. started like partying in the street. And so like a lot of those scenes were actually like people in the neighborhood- coming out. It was cool. And I feel like that sort of the Super Bowl performance, the Super Bowl pregame performance, <laughs> it just felt like that song was so big. And it's something that we've never really experienced of these like kind of incredibly huge audiences, but also kind of a weird performance mental space where you're kind of in out. It's very like regimented for TV or yeah. whatever it is. Well, no one, you know, no one sings live on the Super Bowl. Or am I allowed to say that? Is that a secret? Yeah. Oh, I think, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, a lot of people pre-record it. Yeah. But it'll be like, they'll re-record the vocal live to track. Mm-hmm. So it'll sound live, but they're still lip syncing most, yeah. a lot of the time. But that was, that was edited. I think the weirdest thing was Beyonce was doing it with me. <laughs> well, that's why that performance struck out as, as particularly interesting was that. <laughs> Thank you for using the word interesting. She, cause she sort of was doing like a Oye Como Va. Yeah. And she was doing her dance moves and stuff. And I'm guitarless and feeling like. Oh, what do I do? Like, what do I do with my arms? What do I do with my arms? Um, And I remember like 
I dressed myself that day and like just kind of like showed up and no one really told me what was going on. And I remember getting there and like Beyonce had choreography and like a costume and stuff. And I was like, I feel like no one really, hey guys, I'm here. Like, tell me what to do, please. Um, was there no rehearsal? You just, you just showed up because it was in no, San Diego? No, there was no rehearsal. What? There was no rehearsal. That's crazy. Like we were told there was an edit or whatever. I mean, there was a rehearsal there. Yeah, yeah. I'm saying, but we didn't like, go to SIR and rehearse the week before or something. Yeah. It was like we ran it there on the field. <laughs> the day of or the day before? The day before and the day of maybe. Um, and I shared a trailer with Beyonce and I remember that like I walked in and she was just like rehearsing her dance moves and I was like, cool. Hey, <laughs> like <laughs> I'm not singing. I'm not playing guitar. <laughs> I'm just going to go up there and like I... I think kind of the highlight of my life is I dosy doed with Beyonce because I didn't know what to do on stage. And I kind of like put my arm out and she was like, what the fuck? Like, okay. She oh, dosy doed with me. Moment, like someone who's listening, please make like a gif of me and Beyonce. Like just dosy doing, you'll make my life. Um, but yeah, I wish there had been like more production or preparation for that, but it wasn't. Wild. Yeah. Well, so we were looking and I guess I realized, you know, there was 15 years between your second and third record LPs. Yeah. But you were still like playing shows at a steady clip, like doing at least a couple most years, I think, when I was looking at it. And I know you've talked a lot about like being jerked around in label hell and that stuff. And I know <sighs> yeah, that. Yeah, how much more time do you have? No, exactly. Guys. Well, it's as much as you want to talk about that. But I'm just curious what that experience is like because I'm assuming you're just always writing music and you're still going out and playing, you know, a couple shows every year, yeah. but did your relationship to music change? Did your relationship to performing change during all that stuff? So during my second album, my second album fortunately was successful as well. Mm -hmm. Not as successful yeah, yeah. as my first, yeah, but yeah. It, things were going really well. And I remember the label was asking me when I was going in the studio to make my next record and I remember wanting nothing to do with it. And I had a female backup singer at the time who I'd become really close with and we were writing music on the side. Um, she was the only other girl on tour with me at this point. So we were sharing a room on the road and she played guitar and sang and she was kind of working on her own solo career. And we had been out on the road with the Dixie Chicks on that run and were huge fans of the chicks and the chicks covered a lot of Patty Griffin songs and were huge Patty Griffin fans. And I felt very moved to do something different. And so Jessica Harp was my backup singer. We decided to start a band called the Wreckers. And so a lot of people don't realize, but for the kind of years I went missing, I had a country duo called the Wreckers that was very successful for those years. But I wanted to work on music, but I wanted out of yeah, the, the idea of the machine out yeah. of the idea. I I wanted some creative freedom, and so we made we went and made a record with John Leventhal, who's a phenomenal producer and guitar player. I self financed the album. The label didn't want to sign us. They didn't know what to do with us. And um, when when we finished the record, we turned it in, and Warner Brothers, who I was signed to didn't really know what to do with it. And they sent it to Warner Nashville and they were like, wait, we know what to do with this. And we ended up having a number one single. Our first song out was a number one at country radio and we were nominated for a Grammy. And now you're 22. I was 20. Yeah. 22. <laughs> and actually, and I, and then to make things even more interesting, I found out I was pregnant two weeks after we finished the records album. So I was like, 
record scratch. Like, okay, cool. Well, show must go on because we had just turned in our record. So I had my beautiful daughter, Owen, and we released that album and I toured that record. Did you tour before Owen was born as well? Yeah, I toured you until... Toured pregnant. Oh, yeah, which I do not recommend. <laughs> Talk us through to that, anybody. please. Yeah. Well, first of all, touring as a man, not to like not to make it a male female thing, but touring as a female is really not fun. Yeah. Especially if you're doing like club shows and stuff. Yeah, I mean there's a lot more the the bathrooms, yeah. those showers. <laughs> yeah, guys, it's gnarly. So touring pregnant, I mean, you were living out of a suitcase and having to deal with like backstage bathrooms and catering. And I remember just getting into hotels that said that they had 24 hour room service and we'd show up and they didn't have 24 hour room service and I would just cry because I was so hungry <laughs> and so tired. Um, it was hard, but character building, I guess. But yeah, so I had, I had my daughter and kind of right when the records came out and literally everyone told me, what are you doing? Making a country record. They do not let outsiders in. You're a pop singer. They're what are you doing? And it did really well and it was really well received. And, and it felt like the first time, like I could kind of breathe and I had like oh, wow. control yeah. creatively. So that was, that was kind of my way of taking back control. And then of course, you know, it was a duo. And so we ended up fighting constantly. <laughs> and we, <laughs> and we broke up and we broke up before my, our second record. And oh. Yeah, yes. so that's a whole nother episode. So the ups, the ups and downs of uh, being part of a collective as opposed to being yeah, a boss. Yeah, and then I was like, shit, uh, I'm going to go solo again. <laughs> In those some of those years where you made some music and maybe the label didn't like it or wasn't releasing it, did you ever use performances as a way to take, again, in a similar way to kind of try to take back some of that control or, or the of your own career? Yeah, I mean... It seems strange to say, but I feel like now it would be easier to, I feel like things live more virally and have more of an impact in that way and would work better. But, um, you mean like online? Yeah. I feel like back then, if I had hit kind of some stagnant walls, I would have just gone on tour and played my new record and let it. Even if it wasn't out. Yeah. And and said, you know, come record the show. And you can have my new album. The label won't release it. I probably would have done something like that, but it's a pretty baller move. <laughs> well, maybe in hindsight, it's easier to say that, but at the time, I don't know. I it, I didn't feel like I had many options. Um, I feel like it's very rare. Like every album, so you know, I had my first album, the Santana song, my second album, and the Wreckers, and each one of those albums went platinum. Each one yeah. of those albums recouped, and here I am. Now, you know, not able to put a record out or yeah, kind of get any headway. And I remember Tom Wally being at Warner Brothers telling me basically that I had a potential to be a certain level and they wanted me to be bigger. And basically like what I was turning in wasn't big enough. So I feel like the more success I had, the harder it was to actually get stuff accomplished. Whereas I, I would always say like, God, what if I start a band and I just put this under another name and I just like put this out as a new artist and no one knows it's me that yeah. I get this music out. But I think it was so scrutinized because it was me. 
up until then I had written most of my songs by myself. I didn't write the Santana song, but pretty much all those singles I had written. And here we are like 2010, 2011. And they're like, Hey, so, uh, we have some writers that have submitted some songs for you for your singles. And I was like, Whoa, 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 Whoa. Wait a minute. I think they really wanted me. I remember very much like, I don't know what year it was, but I feel like Katy Perry had just come out and they were like, Hey, so we think you could really be doing like a Katy Perry thing. And I was like, no, like you've got to be crazy. I mean, even, even recently, um, before I released my last record, when I was signing to Verve, before I signed to Verve, I met with Universal and I remember it got brought up in the meeting. Like, what if you did like a duet with Zed? And I was yeah, like, yeah. yeah, no, like you don't understand. <laughs> that's not- like, that's just not what, so, I mean, I, I feel like the one thing I, I will say is like the more successful, like got on paper the harder it that seems very counterintuitive seems awful. yeah and also yeah. kind of the opposite of the way our oh gee stuff thanks has gone. just like yeah, rub right. it in no, well <laughs> i'd say the biggest difference being our success was not a yeah at the nearly at the level that that you know you when you burst out you burst out in a way it was that just is, it was a different time yeah. it was different yeah, i yeah. mean if you but if you the difference is like earlier when i said a radio artist like Patrick and I, my now husband, Patrick Carney, we talk about this all the time of like a radio artist versus like a band who, who toured and the, the number of times that I headlined a show versus like playing radio shows or opening up for other people is like, you guys can sell tickets. Yeah. yeah. You know, I may have sold records or had my songs hit chart positions, but I didn't sell the tickets that you guys do Yeah, or I can guarantee you if you were to ask people like, hey, you guys know Vampire Weekend or Michelle Branch, you'd be like, eh. Like kids these days do not know who I am for sure. So yeah, I just, I think for a band, if there's anyone listening, my advice would be like, I know the radio kind of stuff seems really bright and shiny and you want it. But at the end of the day, like you want to be able to sell tickets and that's Mm -hmm. your bread and butter as a musician, I think. I'm curious during these years where you're, label essentially doesn't understand you whatsoever what was it like to play shows what was it like to get on stage did you find your relationship with your first two records changed as kind of a result of that process I've always held those first two albums very very dear like people ask if I get tired of playing everywhere and I don't I found new ways to play them so I can be excited about it but I I look back on them on those songs very fondly but there were some weird things that happened. Like I had an album that was supposed to come out. I had a few albums that I finished and that were mixed and mastered and had artwork done. Label presidents were getting fired like as my albums were finishing. And so a whole new regime, like my product manager, my A&R, everyone would get fired. My album would get shelved. New people would come in, they'd hear it and they'd go, oh, I think you can beat it. Go back in the studio. And that happened for years and years and years. And one of the weirdest things was I was on Warner Brothers and they wanted me to open up for the Goo Goo Dolls, but it was essentially so they could send me out on radio promo without having to pay yeah. for it. And then I didn't really have a budget to have a band out. So I played like with some, I thought it would be cool if I had like a guitar and a guitar player and a bass player, but we played to like backing tracks, loops and stuff. And it did not go over well. <laughs> like, we, were yeah, playing, right. we were playing outdoor amphitheaters. And I remember like some of the first shows, people were like, where's your drummer? Like, what is this? And I was like, oh, it was so cool. Like in my mind, we were doing like 
a really cool thing and it didn't fly. Um, Well, speaking for all the drummers out there. <laughs> I, I don't mind the impulse from the from the audience member. It was you, right? Yeah, it was, was you. No, but shows. there were like a few moments then where I felt like I was like, shit, like this just feels like I'm out here like a used car salesman a little bit. And that's when I I was fortunate to have my daughter in my home life to kind of like realize that there were certain things I was that's when I started saying no a lot more to certain stuff and Thing, you know, like, is this worth me getting on a plane and not being with my daughter for two weeks? No. And so like I started looking at things that way. But yeah, it's really frustrating to have something that you love doing and then you keep being told that it's not good enough. And of you course. feel very stagnant. And you're watching your peers or your friends like release music and have like full on album cycle yeah. after album cycle. And you're like, shit, you go out to see your friends play and you're like, oh, fuck, I want to play a show so bad. You know, that feeling of like, I want to get up there. Um, So there were definitely some dark, dark moments. But yeah, the thing about being a musician is, yeah, I can stop releasing albums or stop playing shows, but I'm always writing. I'm always playing. So at what point? Yeah. It was definitely hard and very confusing because also I know I'm jumping around a lot, but they wouldn't drop me. So I couldn't. Yeah move on with my life. I was like, here's some more music. And then someone, it was, I was kind of a victim of really just corporate kind of yeah. shuffling. Cause you and were I was perceived as too valuable. Yeah. To, I was an asset. Yeah. So they wouldn't, they wouldn't release anything until they felt it was like going to be wildly successful, but they wouldn't drop me. They wouldn't, they just kind of held on like, yeah. <laughs> like Gollum. <laughs> Holding on to me, <laughs> not letting me do anything. I do feel like more than anyone, honestly, I've ever met, you've kind of lived both sides of the sort of music industry cliche of being overnight success and then also being trapped and being oh, yeah. like victims to the absolute worst impulses of the music industry. So that's just really interesting and crazy to talk to you about that. I guess I'm curious then about the next chapter, which was the record you made and getting to tour again and how did that you, felt. Did you, yeah. Did you find the Hopeless Romantic tour cathartic in a way? <laughs> yeah. Hugely so. Yeah. I mean, you guys said it earlier. Patrick has such an incredible business mind and having kind of come up in a whole kind of DIY mentality, he, he kind of came into my life and before it was a romantic relationship, I knew I had met my match kind of creatively. Um, I remember coming home from like one of my first days in the studio and telling my sister like, whoa, I don't know if I'm going to like start a band with this person or like if we're best friends or like if he's going to manage me or like he just yeah. felt like he had so many answers to questions I had. And I remember like when he first came into my life only as a producer, not as my partner, but he was like, man, you got to fire your agent. Like, whoa, your manager like isn't doing shit. And I was like, what? Like he really like shook things up. And sometimes I was like, oh God, is this like, is this the right move? Like these people I've been with forever. But my old agent like refused to book me a headlining show in a room bigger than the Roxy when I played LA because he said I'd never done it. And Pat was like, well, you're not going to do it unless you You do do it. it. So we ended up like 
I sold out. I headlined at the El Rey, which I'd never done in how long That's was so my career. Crazy. It was That's so weird. That, though, particularly because you said that was the three band bill with pre-maroon five maroon five yeah. was at the L ray and coming yeah, back so many exactly. years later. So that's how long it took me. But because I had opened for people for so long and not been a headliner, like people didn't know if I had the, you know, the hard tickets. So to say something, then I'm going to go back to go on tour on the hopeless romantic tour after that long from being on tour, I played new songs as well as all the old songs and to have people kind of show up when I didn't know if they were going to show up. And seeing all the words was amazing. And I mean, the the kind of coolest thing about being as young as I was when I came out was I feel like the people who listen to me are my same age. So we kind of all grew up together. So it's been really easy to grow musically because they have to, you know, they're not listening to the same music, the same sounding music as my first album. And I think so my new record was easily like palatable for them. And, and I felt really support it. I think kind of like the weirdest thing was sometimes I feel like, like a young legacy artist. Like I have such a catalog. So legacy artists, just just to explain a little bit, legacy artists is kind of given to, is a a title or an idea of people whose maybe peak commercial past is behind them or even creative past often. And they're associated with an era that is not the current one. Yeah. And that can mean any number of things, you know, 60s, 50s, whatever. So how do you feel about that? If you yeah, feel like you're so sometimes, sometimes being- so sometimes I feel like before that tour started, I felt like, and maybe it's my own kind of insecurities or my own perception of, you know, well, are you gonna play those old songs? Like if we come see Michelle Branch or you, you know, what's you're playing all the old songs, right? But I didn't want to be stuck in kind of this like nostalgia. Yeah, show. of course. That's how like, it, yeah. Hey, I know I haven't had an album out in a while, so I'm just going to play all the old songs. And well, that wouldn't honor like almost the, the 10 years and all the experiences that you've been through since then. Yeah. But I mean, I don't know. I, I feel like if I were just a tiny bit older, it could easily go down that road of like mm-hmm. me playing casinos somewhere. I don't know. But Patrick really helped me kind of reclaim some confidence and after being feeling like kind of so beat down he ended up kind of taking the reins and and saying like hey I I believe in this I think the record is amazing you need to go back out on tour there are people who want to see you play and and showed me that I didn't need to make a record that was going to get on the radio to feel successful and and actually it was the first time that I've like felt really really proud of I mean, the records I was really, really proud of, but this record, I felt really like I could play this for my peers and I, like, I'm, I'm really proud of it. Whereas like some of my older stuff at the time would be like, oh, okay. It didn't feel like I had found it yet. Mm -hmm. And that's the other thing is like most of the records I love that I grew up listening to the artists who I love, like their successful albums were, weren't their first albums. It was like their third or their fourth album. So I feel like you know, that doesn't exist anymore of being able to have that many chances. So the fact that I've even been been allowed to grow and change this much is crazy. And, and yeah, now I, I feel like I'm, I'm finally like in a place where I have a balance between music and, and my life, yeah, my career and my life. And I, like, I enjoy playing music again. It's and it seems not like, as stressful. Not, not that we're like breaking news or anything, but it seems like you're working on stuff and yeah. are you, are you thinking about 
what that means and, and touring and, and yeah, performing into the future? I don't know what it means. Um, for those listening, we're sitting here in our home studio or Patrick's studio, really. But I have the luxury of, you know, walking across the driveway and working anytime I want. Um, we have a little boy who was just born in August. So the idea of touring isn't really yeah, yeah. on <laughs> my fair mind. Enough, fair enough. Yes, <laughs> um, yes. Yeah. But making music is, I'm always wanting to screw around and Patrick and I always joke about doing a project that isn't a Michelle Branch project, but I don't know if that's really started yet. It hasn't felt like that, but I'm always writing. And now I know that there are people out there who will show up. So, Did you have a single favorite show from the tour? From um, the Hopeless Romantic Tour. Yeah. Yeah, We played the closing show at Webster Hall before they Mm -hmm. reopened. (laughs) Just... A few weeks ago, yeah, yeah. Again. We, we played one yeah, of yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah, great. Yeah. Well, I closed it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay. So I hope you guys, you know, did better than me closing <laughs> it. The dressing rooms were probably in slightly better shape. Oh, yeah. I, I hope guess. so. <laughs> yeah. um, but I, because it was a New York show at a venue that my agent, who I had fired, said I could never play, and it was sold out. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. you know, bartenders were like dancing on the bars, singing along. It was just very. It felt good. It was a actually a show a couple of days before that at the nine 30 club, which is one of my favorite venues to play. Oh, yeah. Um, the audience was singing so loud. I could barely hear myself singing some of those old songs and new songs. Yeah. Um, it was much needed for my own, yeah. <laughs> for my own emotional health that tour. Like I started it like, what if no one comes and it ended right. with like being well, really successful. That's, that's your, that, Cause you were told in yeah. many ways that people wouldn't come or, yeah. or whatever that, yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I can imagine that felt very satisfying. That, yeah, yeah, it, it feels did. like a happy ending in a way, or at least to that chapter where sure. like no, I, mean, I can only imagine yeah, the frustration to then actually be going and doing things. You had a career at that point for 17 years and to be doing things for the very first time, I think that's like absolutely beautiful and incredible. Yeah, yeah. it's it's been a long road, but uh the beauty is like I still feel like young and of course inspired yeah. and new to stuff. Like, I mean, I'm 35 and we're all the same age. In yeah. Here. Yeah. yeah. And, we're the same age and I'm, I'm like, okay, I still feel like I have some touring years. I have one question I think to yes. finish off, which is sort of a little bit of an encompassing all of we talked about. And this was in what I thought was a very sweet video that I think we both watched was a little letter to your 18 year old self. Oh gosh. This is from from Team Vogue or something. That one of the things you said I thought was pretty fascinating was it's okay to say no. Oh yeah, big one. And I think two sides of this question is: what are some of the things you you wish you'd said no to? Yeah. And is there anything you wish you'd said yes to? Oh well, I found as I get older, it's been easier to say no to stuff out of fear. Um, There's a lot of things I wish I'd said yes to, but I was just too scared to do it, and that stuff was all kind of usually outside of a comfort zone. Like I've been asked to audition for movies and stuff. And I was like, really wanted to do it, but was too nervous. So I said no. And now I look back, I'm like, God damn it. Like, why didn't you <laughs> say yes and like go try out for that stuff um, when you had the opportunity to? Any fun movies? Um, yeah. I mean, I got I got asked to audition for A Star is Born. Oh. oh. Um, years ago. Yeah, yeah. Oh, like, well, it's been, that was, go- that was a, mean, long, a long journey. It had been going project. on yeah, yeah. and on and on. Um, I got asked to audition for a girl with a dragon tattoo. Oh, sick. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They were like, yeah, David Fincher wants you to come in and read. I'm like, no, 
my, my agent was like, what the fuck is your problem? And I was like, I'm too scared. I won't do it. And I'm like, come on. Like, I, just- bet, I bet Pat would have said, you can do this. <laughs> you, like, you just needed that little confidence boost. No, but I just, I'm not an actor. So it felt like I was like a fraud. But I mean, there are very, as you guys know, like there are weird stuff that, weird opportunities that come up when you have a successful album that you get asked to do stuff that you're like, really? This is weird. So those kind of opportunities I'd wish I I had gotten out of my own way and just gone for the experience. Um, And things I had said no to, there were times when I was traveling like during the holidays or like missing Christmases or Thanksgiving with family and stuff that I should have said no to just like they were miserable and it was cold and I was on the road. Um, I feel like there's nothing that really stands out hugely as I sh- I shouldn't have done it. But I think being as young as I was and surrounded primarily by older men that often I felt like the things that came across my plate weren't presented to me in a way that I had a choice. It was like, Hey, so you got asked to do this. So Starting on, you know, September 10th, you're going to start going out here for three weeks. And this, going and out I, with Lifehouse. Yeah. And I never was like, okay, what are our other options? Like, so if I say no to that, like, what would we do? Those were kind of the things that I wish mm-hmm. I had kind of known my options maybe more. But um, in hindsight, you know, my manager was a baby too. Like, we were all figuring it out as we went. And, and it was growing faster than we could keep up with. So we were just kind of making decisions on the fly and I wouldn't change a thing really. Well, an incredible career so far and (laughs) hopefully an incredible career to come. Yeah. Thanks guys. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for this. Well, that was our conversation with Michelle Branch. Uh, This is still November 4th. We're still in CNC Music Factory in Eagle Rock. That convo was back in June. It really took me back. It took me back to June as well as to, you know, my high school years and, and watching some of those things. The, the Super Bowl pregame show with uh, Michelle Santana, Beyonce. Huge. All that went down there. Yeah, I mean, what a... I, I think we say this many times, so we're, I'm repeating myself, but what an insane story. The speed of the ascent and, and I think all the stuff that she's had to deal with and and learn over the course of her career. I really... Appreciate Michelle taking the time and and sharing with us and and being so honest. So thank you, Michelle. Thank you so much, Michelle. Thank you, Michelle and Patrick, for having us over. Yeah. It's not the most recent, but I do want to say also that her last album, Hopeless Romantic, came out in 2017, which was produced by Patrick Carney. So uh, you should check that out as well as her, you know, deep catalog. But Hopeless Romantic uh, by Michelle Branch, take a listen. Definitely. Um If you've listened to this podcast before, you know at the end we like to answer some listener questions. Uh, The email address you would send questions or feedback is theroadtaken at theringer.com. CT, let's do an email check. Are you uh, able to get into the email? You know, I I was almost in, but then... um I tried when we were on the tour in Mexico and there was something with like the geographic uh, yeah, yeah. thing. I, I didn't, didn't quite happen for me, but um, <laughs> I, I, you are right. It's on, I, I'm, a, it. I'm able to get into the email, but um, yeah, if you want to reach CT, just know that I'm going to read the emails first. Cause I'm the current, currently the only host of this podcast with access to the road taken at the ringer.com. I uh, pulled out two great questions for us oh, wow, to answer nice. today. Um, this first one comes from a gentleman named Mike called Question About the Aesthetics of Instrument Placement. 
That's a beautiful title for a subject for an email. Hey, CT and Bayo. First time, long time, although I guess not that long since it's only been five episodes, but I've loved everyone so far. So true. Two questions. First, a hyper-specific one, then a general one. I've been watching a bunch of your guys' live performances on YouTube lately, and I don't know why I haven't noticed this before, but CT, I saw that compared to some earlier performances, you keep that hi-hat nice and low, like by your waist level. Is there any particular reason you drop that bad boy down? Purely a comfort thing? I'm assuming he means as opposed to earlier in our career, it was significantly higher. Yeah, it was higher. Yeah. Okay. Um, this is something, and now we've been touring together, as we've said, for 12 years. I'd never noticed this. You know what? Neither did I. <laughs> uh, Oops. Early on, any placement stuff was, for me, a drum placement, was pure guesswork. I truly had no idea what I was doing, but it felt comfortable. I was, the, the physicality of it um, worked, so I didn't really think about it too much. And I do, yeah, I, the snare was quite low the, and the hi-hat was kind of high. I honestly think that maybe part of it was that on this album cycle, we have a new drum tech a beautiful man named Josh, who's great at his job. And, I think, I, and also, I just want to say uh, on the side, <laughs> some people have asked about interviewing some crew members and stuff like that. I think some of these intros while we're in Europe, we should try and do a little quick a little, quick hits with, little with quick crew hits. members. Yeah, yeah. It's a great idea. Um, also, taking a break from playing, the, you know, I didn't play the drums with a lot of frequency uh, while Vampire Weekend wasn't touring. Uh, so when I came back to it, you know, I'm a little older, a little creakier. So maybe I think the lower hi-hat is is a little bit more comfortable now. I think I play more with my wrists and fingers than I do with my elbow and shoulders, which was I had zero technique in 2007 and I mm. you know, I have a fair amount more now. But if the question had been phrased differently and saying is your hi-hat significantly lower than it used to be, I probably would have said no. Right, that's funny. So and then the second or part I, of this I don't one know, is what Yeah, I yeah, yeah. The second part of this question is more general version of the question for both of you guys. Do you put any thought into the aesthetics of playing your instruments? For example, I don't know if this pure is purely an aesthetic choice or technical, but it seems like most punk guitarists keep their guitars super low, which always seemed impractical. I remember when I first started playing drums, my kit had two mounted toms and a floor tom, but I noticed that most of my favorite jazz drummers only had the one mounted tom and thought it looked cooler. So I took it off and moved the ride so it hangs right where the second tom was, it's a very technical description. I love it. Purely aesthetic at first, but now it's just more comfortable. Anyways, sorry for getting long-winded there. Love the hey, show. Hey, no need to apologize, Mike. No, no, no need to apologize. Love the show and looking forward to future episodes. So I feel like you kind of answered that question with what you just said, but I, I would say just for me, whatever I feel most comfortable with, and that's kind of where I, I wear my bass. Um, I definitely was trying to avoid any kind of pop-punk stank, as we discussed in the episode with Winston, but that's, yeah... Well, I think like with a lot of things about onstage persona, when you start, you're reacting to either your idols or whatever examples you have at hand, and you're either moving away from them or embracing them, you know, with the pop punk thing of the mm -hmm. low hanging, the low hanging guitars, which is, are very suitable for guitar spins and, you know, over your shoulder yeah, and yeah. whatnot. <laughs> um, so yeah, I, I think I too know that the, dr the drum setup I use is not the most functional for like a jazz setup. Say, so yeah, for sure. But yeah, I, I think you kind of, not only in instrument playing, but then also for the way you approach the playing itself and the, the look of it, you take the examples you have and you make choices and then you see how it feels and you move on and you learn. Um, so I feel like we both kind of experienced that. Yeah, definitely. And here's another question from Hugo. The subject is A hyphen question. It's already a great title. Okay. 
Hey guys, Portuguese fan currently in Mexico. Love the pod and you guys have great chemistry. Duh, on the mic. Wait, was that, was that duh from Hugo or from you? It was from Hugo. Okay, I would okay, never. Okay, okay. Yeah, yeah. But Hugo put in I parentheses. Of, I felt out of character for you to say. No, I wouldn't say okay. that. But I, we appreciate that a lot, Hugo. Here's my question. How do you feel playing songs like A-Punk or Cousins, which you've played perhaps thousands of times? I always wonder if you go into autopilot or your mind is creating your grocery shopping list or you plow through it professionally. Or you still have a blast with them or all of the above. Keep the pods coming. Take care, Hugo, one of the in-rhythm clap crowd. That's nice. a reference to uh, Portuguese heritage. Um, how, how do you feel when we play songs that we've played hundreds, if not thousands of times? It depends on the song. If the song is a complicated song, then my mind definitely does not want, does yeah, not yeah. wonder. It's a mix of all of that. I think with a song like A-Punk, which is one of our better-known songs, I think the metrics uh, would tell me, there's always like a really fun reaction and even if you've played it a bunch of times and seen that reaction, it's still new. There's still, I mean, the the whole point of live music is that there's there's a feeling in the room that is happening just then. And even if the song is old or ha- you have, I have my own history with it, the moment that we begin playing it is has never happened before. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think those songs are, are are really fun to play. And in some ways, maybe my mind wanders more. The song like A-Punk is not my most challenging drum part. Yeah. So honestly, that lets me take in the room more. Like a song like Cousins is a little bit more complicated and like chopsy for me. So I kind of, my eyes are closed. I can't really take in the energy as much. But for A Punk, it's like, it's fun. It's almost like, oh, cool. Like, and seeing people jump, iPhones or various whatever uh, devices come out. I feel like I'm allowed to wander and take in the room more in more of a meta sense. Yeah. I guess for me, those specific ones, it's always a party and I really enjoy playing them. And I, my mind is not wandering to my grocery list uh but there are definitely other songs and other times where my mind does wander but those ones where the crowd is really going nuts um, i feel about as in the moment as i can as a performer so great question hugo thank you hugo and mike these Both yeah, great questions great questions Man, i really I, I really gotta i'll, I'll get on it I'll yeah yeah the road taken at the ringer.com if you want us to answer your questions um ct who do we have on next week actually well this is an idea that you had ct you wanted us to each interview a hero mm. over the course of the season. And next week is my hero. So who are we talking to? Well, I'm not... Why don't you introduce your hero? Why would I introduce that person? We are interviewing the original singer of Can, Mr. Malcolm Mooney. Um, he's someone who is an absolute legend and really influenced and changed music. Uh, if you haven't heard of him, you've definitely heard music that he's influenced. He's been covered by Radiohead. Uh, and we flew up to Calgary... Kind of right the week that um, FOTB was coming out to interview him, and he welcomed us into his home and was really gracious. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm very excited to share my hero. Your hero is going to be week nine, mm-hmm. but uh, next week is my guy, so I'm pretty psyched about that. Is there uh, anything you want to plug? Anything going on? Um, <laughs> that's funny. You, this is like the third week in a row you've done it, and I. I probably should be preparing for this at this point. Oh, when I ask you what you want to plug, you can yeah. plug anything. No, yeah, you read I know. a good book lately. I read an Ursula K. Le Guin book called *The Dispossessed*, which is not new by any stretch, but no, I, but I, I thoroughly enjoyed. You can plug enjoyed. whatever you want in this section. You know, I'm going to plug *Vampire Weekend's upcoming European tour. Three weeks in Europe, we're going all over. I'm excited. I think Chris Bayo is excited. I'm very excited. We're all excited. What are you, are you plugging? Something? Uh, I got nothing. I really want to plug. I'm, I'm going to plug something oh, next, next week. week. Yeah, okay. I got, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> So well, stay tuned listen. for the Chris Bale's plug <laughs> and the Peacoat saga. There is that actually is two things to look forward to. But yeah, we're gonna be 
Taping it's all the It's a very CJB heavy episode. It's a very CJB focused episode I, next week. That is true. My guy and my plug and my Pete coat, that is going to be... <laughs> there's so much to look forward to next week. Yeah, we'll be on the road for the rest of the season. So, you know, hopefully there'll be more of that on the road energy with all this shit. And I want to leave you with a quote from Mr. Dave Matthews. For me, in songwriting, I have a route I can take. Maybe there's some forks. I can go this way this way but I know those roads I still have the experience behind me see you next week 